the 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never! Do you not know what he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body. But whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honour God with your bodies. Now for, the, uh, now for the matters you wrote about. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfil his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. Last week... Uh, we saw from the sixth commandment to not murder the most powerful idea that Christian believers hold to, and that is every human being, every human being, regardless of capacity, utility, or potentiality, bears God's image. And God loves his image bearer so much that he would lay down his own life for every human being. Today we're going to look at the seventh commandment which deals with sex and adultery. And it almost seems like um, a bit of a disconnect between the sixth commandment and the seventh commandment. There is a connection, but I thought to not make it feel like all of a sudden... Uh, uh, emotionally disengaged with this sermon, I thought it would be appropriate just to stop and just give thanks for life and to really honour this great truth that every Christian believes to, that regardless of capacity, utility and potentiality, every human being is God's image bearer. So let me do that, just to give a quick thanks that you and I are God's image bearers. Heavenly Father, we just want to pause for a moment. To see humanity for what you see, not just flesh and bones, not just personalities, but image bearers, And so, Father, we are so engulfed 
with strong feelings of hate, judgment, and disregard. Father, at the very least, help that in our time together that we will cherish one another because we are God's image bearers. No matter what we're feeling, no matter what weakness that we're going through, regardless of our capacity, utility and potentiality, we are loved by you and so give us the heart to cherish and love one another. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And so this is a remarkable high view of humanity that God has endowed upon us. And as we saw last week, this has implications on not just how we treat our neighbours, but also for our approach to sex. So let me bring that connection now. If human beings are so highly dignified as God's image bearers, such valued by God, it means we are not to act in such violent acts, to not think in such judgmental and degrading and hateful terms, but we can also express our life-givingness, our life-affirmingness, also through acts of sex. And so we are in the sermon series on Ten Commandments, which are rules for living in God's freedom. And today we are looking at the Seventh Commandment, which is, you shall not commit adultery. And I show to us today that from the Bible, it's not about sexual appetite. It's actually about upholding a dignified view of humanity and thereby living and loving humanity in that light. And so to understand why the Bible prohibits adultery, we need to understand God's purpose for sex. And that might sound like a question that's pretty simple to answer. You're probably like, hey, we're all adults here. Uh, we've already know the birds and bees. Uh, this is not kids' church. <laughs> kids' church is down there. Um, I don't think we need another sermon on sex education. But I'd like to show you that the Bible shows that there is a profound purpose for sex, a purpose that is greater than pleasure, greater than even making babies. Sex also has a profound purpose, we read from the Bible, of achieving oneness between two individuals. We read in the first book of the Bible in Genesis, with Adam and Eve, man and woman coming together, they became one flesh. And this oneness is not just talking about how body parts fit together. Frequent euphemism for sex used throughout the Old Testament of the Bible is to know a woman. So sex is sacred in the sense that through sex we come to know a partner in a profoundly intimate way. It's a point where we can now also described from a scientific perspective as sexual health researchers really stress about the reality of the bonding hormones released with sexual intercourse. And so if you find yourself persuaded that sex is a way to achieve this spiritual truth about intimate oneness with one another, then you will approach sexual activity very differently. You begin to see that such intimate sharing and giving of oneself to another needs to be bound 
It really naturally needs to be bound by the vow of lifelong commitment. Because sex is God's appointed way for people to reciprocally say to one another, I belong to you completely, permanently, exclusively to you. And so accordingly, a marriage commitment is necessary for sex. It creates that security, vulnerability and intimacy to be at one with one another. The modern sexual revolution finds that idea of sex till marriage to be so unrealistic and even ludicrous. But the Bible prohibits sex before marriage not because it has a low view of sex, but because it has such a high and lofty view of sex. The Bible views of sex outside of marriage is not just morally wrong, it also points to how personally harmful it can be. Because sex makes you feel personally interwoven and joined to another human. But if there's no lifelong commitment, there's no corresponding responsibility and obligation to uphold and protect that intimate connectedness. Such intimate connection naturally desires and demands a corresponding commitment. And without it, it leads, as we can appreciate feelings of real jealousy, hurtful feelings, and obsessiveness. And so that means good sex is always married sex. Good sex is always married sex. Because intimacy and connectedness are protected and nurtured by commitment. See, the Bible values sex so much as to limit its enjoyment to the most intimate human relationship imaginable, one bound by the vow of lifelong commitment. And so at the heart of the seventh commandment is guarding the intimate bond of marriage. Sex is not just one's appetite, it's also a self-giving act of achieving oneness between two. It's not just about one's appetite, but it's about the oneness between two, husband and wife. And with children, the seventh commandment is also about protecting the cohesion of families. George Athos, an Old Testament lecturer at Moore College, says in his commentary in Deuteronomy that adultery, therefore, is not just about sexual indiscretion, but also an attack upon another's family. Adultery introduces a competing claim to the children, thereby throwing children's identity into uncertainty. This, in turn, compromises family cohesion, destabilizes family ties, and blurs the lines of responsibility. Adultery, therefore, destabilizes people's identity and society in a profound way. You can see sex is not just about one's sexual appetite. It's also the self-giving act of achieving oneness between two, husband and wife, exclusively for the good of marriage and for children. To obey the seventh commandment, we need to understand that adultery is a matter of the heart. We commit adultery in our hearts before we commit it with our hands. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, You have heard what it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. The direct translation of verse 28 is to look at a woman with lustful intent. Or another way to translate is, whoever looks at a woman in order to lust. So noticing and acknowledging someone of the opposite sex is pretty or handsome is not wrong. 
The issue is not about noticing someone's attractiveness. Rather, it's the issue of intention. The intention to look at someone's attractiveness in order to satisfy one's own lustful desires. And so it's not as Christians we have to avoid seeing beautiful things. The issue that Jesus is pointing out is the intentional nursing of desire, the directing of desire, aiming to fulfill the lustful desire. And this is Jesus was saying as the adultery in the heart in the similar way that Jesus describes hate as murder. Jesus is saying that even if we don't commit a physical act with our bodily parts, we can still be guilty of sexual sin by means of our thoughts, our fantasies, our readings, our clickings and our affections. And we can see how there is such a broad range of ways that we can have an affair in our hearts. And therefore, Apostle Paul instructs us in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 to flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. The Greek word translated sexual immorality is porneia, which is where we get the English word for pornography. The word refers to any sexual practice outside of God's good design and purposes for sex which is for the oneness between man and woman in marriage. So any sexual desire outside of marriage, Paul commands us not to manage our desires, not to wean off our desires, but to flee, to flee. And that means when we see sexual immorality looming on the horizon, we need to turn around and head in the opposite direction. Because if you let yourself get too close, you can get sucked in. Just like a magnet is to a metal, the closer you get together, the stronger the pull. And so too is with sexual sin. And so the practical answer is to notice those desires early, turn around and run away. It means to take action early. To translate flee is to take action early and run the opposite way. So I want to encourage all of us to take the opportunity in our community groups as we study this passage, to discuss what it would practically look like to take action early. And a helpful suggestion is perhaps if you have enough members in your group to break off between guys and girls, to really talk about what does it mean to flee, to take action early. One way to take action to run, is to run to a trusted Christian friend, to tell them about the temptation. It's okay to be tempted. It's time to act Time to run to Jesus, time to run to a trusted friend before temptation becomes an act of sexual sin. So when it comes to having an affair in our hearts, to have a sexual desire to be fulfilled outside of God's design and purpose for sex, then no one can escape Jesus' penetrating words. No one can, pen- can escape his penetrating words. And so if we can really be honest, we can all acknowledge that sexual sins are the easiest and most guilt-inducing sins to commit for many. But there's this wonderful incident in the life of Jesus. This incident that assures us that the Lord Jesus tenderly allows us to approach him in our weaknesses and our failures. It's this incident about a woman who was caught in the act of adultery. 
Don't know what that actually was like, but it's quite alarming that she was caught right in the act. Not after. And she was actually dragged and brought before Jesus. Can you imagine how scary, humiliating that would be to be fronted to Jesus? And the religious leaders reminded Jesus that the law commanded us to stone such a woman. And then they say, now what do you say, Jesus? Jesus thought about it for a moment and replied with these deservedly profound, proverbial words. He says, let any one of you who is without sin cast the first stone. And slowly the accusers departed one by one. And then Jesus simultaneously comforted and challenged the woman, saying this, we read in, one, in John chapter 8, Neither do I condemn you. Go and leave your life of sin. Neither do I condemn you. Go and leave your life of sin. In our weakness and failures, we can come to Jesus for forgiveness, not condemnation. Jesus lived a totally pure life. But it doesn't mean that Jesus was not sexual. Jesus did not live a life free from any kind of sexual temptation. The book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus was tempted in every way that we are. Every way. So we need to understand that Jesus was red-blooded as a man of anyone of us here. Jesus was a real man. He had normal male human desires. That means he was tempted to lust after women. He was tempted to fantasize. He was tempted to, as a single guy to have sex outside of marriage. But he did not let his mind wander. He did not let his go where they should not go. He did not see women as sex objects. And he never fell into sexual sin. And so he lived a life that we should have lived. But this is what he does next, which is so amazing. That in his amazing grace, he does not stand his righteousness to overshadow us. Instead, in his righteousness, he took a shadowy death. Death on a cross. The most shameful, humiliating death. He was dragged by the religious leaders who is a man who committed no adultery, who committed no sin. He was dragged to the cross to die for our sins, including all of our sexual sins. And so when we messed up, Jesus succeeds and his death covers all of our sins. His faithfulness replaces our adultery in our hearts. And like the woman caught in adultery, by his forgiveness, we can be free to leave a life of sin. That is such a remarkable incident of Jesus that shows us of his forgiveness. That is what he's on about and not condemnation. And so before I pray, I thought it would be really good just to stop for a moment and to picture this incident. 
And as I read it out, I want to take the opportunity for us to be in the woman's shoes. So once you close your eyes and just imagine, and I'll read it out, and an opportunity for us to take her place. So let me read out John chapter 8. At dawn he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the laws of Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down, started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older one first, until only... Jesus was left with a woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Now imagine yourself to be in the place of the woman. And hear Jesus say these words directly to you. Neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. Neither do I condemn you. Go now, leave your life of sin. Neither do I condemn you. Now. Go, leave your life of sin. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. That in our failures and in our weakness, we come to you and you tell us you do not condemn us. Help us in the freedom of your forgiveness to now go and leave our life of sin. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.